Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. In his letter to the Ephesians, not our passage for this morning, but in another letter that he wrote, his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 asserts, There is one body and one spirit, just as there is one hope to which God has called you. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and there is one God and Father of all who is Lord of all and works through all and is in all. Today, as we continue our sermon series answering questions submitted by this community, baptism will be our next topic of focus, hence the baptismal font front and center. Ironically and tragically, baptism, something that is intended to unite us in the faith, has been over the centuries, historically, and still even recently, the source of much confusion and division within the church. But together, as we search the scriptures, we will learn this is not how it should be. In fact, and I can pretty much guarantee this for many of you in this room, we might be surprised and hopefully encouraged by what we discover along the way. And we're going to begin, if you have those Bibles open, by looking at an excerpt from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, one of many passages in the New Testament that seeks to articulate the meaning and significance of Christian baptism. Let's hear that word this morning from Romans chapter 6. It reads, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're new today or with us for the first time or haven't been here in a bit, um, as with other sermons in this series, there's going to be a lot of layers to this message. Everything that I'm going to share with you builds on each other, and it's going to require you to stay focused. And trust me, if you do, we'll get to the heart of the answer to the questions that were submitted about baptism. And there were several. To begin with, acknowledge, let's acknowledge baptism is the entry point into the Christian faith. Through the prayerful action of either having water placed or splashed on one's forehead or being submerged in an ocean, a river, or a tub of water, being baptized is one of the identifying marks of being a follower of Jesus. Yet, as much as baptism is a foundational experience of the Christian faith, interestingly, there is very little in the Bible that addresses the particulars of this practice. All the various mentions of baptism throughout the New Testament are descriptive rather than prescriptive. While they offer descriptions as to the meaning and significance of baptism, which we'll get into, none of them, none of them explicitly outline the method, the mode, or any age requirements for being baptized. Please hold that in your mind. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, something else that's interesting, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, is we actually fail to find any mention of the practice of baptism as we know it at all. 
As we turn the pages of our Bibles from the Old Testament to the New, as we witness Jesus' cousin John out in the wilderness baptizing people, it's not like we can go back and say, oh, look, John is doing just like what Moses did, or Joshua, or David, or Isaiah. This is entirely new for us, and the gospel writers offer no explanation for what John is doing. Those who come out to the wilderness to meet John are presented as not being confused by or questioning his actions. Apparently, there is some frame of reference for them being told to get down into the waters of the Jordan River, but we are not informed as to what that precedent is. So again, we have to kind of look for clues as to, we're left to infer the basis for what John is doing in connecting the taking of a quick bath with people getting right with God and preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. So we start by asking, where does baptism come from? What's the connection? What's the origin for what John is doing? And one of the strongest possibilities for where this comes from are the various admonitions and examples of purifications or cleansings that were part of the Old Testament economy. In books like Exodus, Numbers, and especially Leviticus, specific instructions are outlined for the ceremonial cleansing of objects, clothes, individuals, and the community that involved either water, ashes, or the blood of an animal used for ritual sacrifice. In every case, the baptismal process involved the dipping of some instrument, wool or hyssop, into a substance, in most cases it was water, but sometimes, again, it was also ashes or blood, and then sprinkling that substance on the object, on the clothes, on the person, or the community as a symbol of the spiritual purity that only God can affect. Perhaps one of the most vivid pictures that comes to mind when we think about this type of cleansing is from the story of 2 Kings. If you're not familiar with this story, this is the story of Naaman, the Syrian army commander, foreigner who suffered from a severe case of leprosy, who's then directed by the prophet Elisha to wash himself several times, seven times in the Jordan River in order to be healed. As Naaman finally does what he is directed to do, Naaman comes out of the water not only cleansed physically, but spiritually as he professes his faith in the God of Israel. Although none of these acts we witness in the Old Testament are specifically referred to as baptism, they still seem to form the basis of John the Baptist's action in the wilderness of calling for repentance and cleansing in anticipation of the dawn of the kingdom of God. But if you recall, as John himself proclaims, his baptism is merely preparatory, preparatory for the coming of the Messiah. For the ultimate cleansing, forgiving, and saving work only the Messiah could do. Which, of course, begs the question, if you remember... Begs the question, if Jesus is that Messiah, why then was Jesus baptized by John in a baptism of repentance, in a baptism that is preparatory? And the answer to this question is important because it informs our understanding and our practice of Christian baptism. To be clear, Jesus as the Son of God, fully divine, perfect and without sin, did not need to be baptized. Yet Jesus chose to be baptized and in so doing, gave us a better understanding of the significance of the incarnation, of God coming down not only to be with us, but becoming one of us, completely human, sharing in the fullness of our humanity, experiencing all our pain, all our suffering, and even our mortality. 
Jesus' baptism is important because it shows, shows us how far our creator God is willing to go to identify us. While not being sinful, being willing to bear the consequences of human sin, which is death, something Jesus eventually and willingly embraces on the cross. And in embracing a death he did not deserve, Jesus covers and heals the cosmic breach, the brokenness of all creation that none of us, that no one else ever could. Being baptized into our humanity, becoming one with us, God in Christ chooses to stand in solidarity with us, to claim us and redeem us as his own. Therefore, what is said from heaven of Jesus as he is baptized, this is so important, is not only a declaration of who he is, but it is a declaration of our true identity in Christ. We, in Christ, are the beloved sons and daughters, the children of God, in whom our Father is pleased to love this is our one true lasting identity. But there's even more to why Jesus was baptized. Jesus being not only the son of God, but the son of man, fully human, chose to be baptized in order to show us, to model for us, what our true humanity is supposed to look like. What it can be when we live lives of repentance of daily reorientation towards God, as we live life in and through the Spirit, a life of regularly abiding, like Jesus, in our Heavenly Father. Now, something that stands out in the Gospel, something else we ought to notice, is how after Jesus is baptized, as Jesus arrives on the scene and calls his first disciples and they follow him, you ever notice that we witness no mention of them being baptized by his cousin John? We might scratch our heads and wonder why this is so. But it all makes sense if we remember John's baptism was preparatory for the Messiah who had now come in Jesus. Remember the greater baptism to which John pointed, the one John declared would come only through the Messiah, was a baptism of fire. Fire, by the way, being a biblical allusion to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it is after Jesus' death after Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension into heaven, that his first disciples do receive this promised baptism as something, do you remember, like tongues of fire. The gift of the Holy Spirit descend upon them and those gathered with them on Pentecost. As Jesus extends the following commission to his first followers to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching those who seek to follow the way and truth of truth and life of Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, part of our understanding of the baptism to which Jesus directs us as his followers is informed by what happens at Pentecost. In other words, embracing the waters of baptism is an external representation of our reception of the divine blessing of an internal gift, the fire, the living waters, as Jesus calls them, of the Holy Spirit. And it's in putting all these insights together, hopefully you've been tracking with me, we come to infer the meaning of baptism. And what we learn is to begin with, baptism is about identifying with Christ. Just as Jesus was baptized into our life with its brokenness and sorrow, as well as the inevitable, inescapable consequence of our sinful lives, which is death, through his willing sacrifice, Jesus died to make right all that is wrong in this world and in our lives. And his res resurrection reflects his victory over sin, death, and the devil and serves as the assurance of an invitation into a new, full, abundant, and everlasting life. And baptism is our embracing of that invitation, 
of identifying with Jesus as he identified with us, being baptized, as the scriptures say, into his life, his death, and his resurrection. In our passage today, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, puts it this way. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is about belonging. It's declaring to whom we ultimately belong and to whom and what we live for. To be baptized is to take the first definitive step of dying to self, dying to the mindset of our independence, of being accountable and answerable to no one, dying to the practice of living for ourselves, for me, myself, and I. Because to be baptized is to no longer have our identity and destiny confined by what we do or don't do, by what we earn or don't earn, by what we achieve or don't achieve, or even what others say about us. To be baptized is the beginning of a journey of coming alive in Christ, of discovering, learning, and growing in the assurance who we are is always and only defined by God, the God who declares us to be his beloved children. Second, then, baptism is not only identifying with, laying claim to Jesus' life, death, death, and resurrection. Baptism is also acknowledging our need to be forgiven and healed by God in Christ. One of the primary elements of baptism, as we know, is water. Water is life. Our bodies are made mostly of it. We drink it. We rely upon it to make things grow. Water is essential when we are dirty or unhealthy to get clean. Water is vital for a life of growth rather than a life of stagnation or drought or ultimately death. And the waters of baptism reflect both our cleansing and forgiveness by Jesus that again come by the foundation of his life, death, and resurrection, but that are actualized in our lives through the work of Christ's Spirit. To be baptized is the jumping off point of daily and continually exchanging the sin in our lives, the brokenness in our lives for the grace offered to us through the life of Jesus. A life built not on getting what we deserve, but a life built on receiving what we need, the unconditional and unconquerable love of God. But let us understand, baptism is not some passing of the baton. God did God's part, and now it's up to us to become a better person. And many of us, that's the Christian life we're living. God did his part. We've been baptized. Now it's our turn. No, baptism is not some passing of the baton. In fact, to be baptized is the first step of an ongoing surrender, of a daily, long obedience in the same direction, of being formed, of being shaped, of being transformed by God's word and spirit. The waters to which we commit ourselves through baptism represent our yielding to the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Because as sons and daughters of God, we can only become everything we were meant to be, the fullest and best version of ourselves through the power and work of the Spirit. To be baptized, the scriptures say, is to become a living temple of the Holy Spirit, wherein every thought we have, every word we utter, every action we take is taken captive and tamed, tamed from our tendency towards self-centeredness and instead becomes an act of worship in Christ-centeredness. And so thirdly, this means that baptism is our initiation into something larger than ourselves, 
to be baptized is to understand we don't follow Jesus alone. Through the calling and gift of the Spirit, we become part of the body of Christ, a body which has many members. Baptism unites us as a part of the wider Christian community across the globe and across time, a body known as the church. To be baptized is to acknowledge we are bound together in this walk of faith, in following Jesus through the word and the spirit, that we are not gifted and empowered to do the will of God alone, but that God's kingdom is advanced through our unity and not our division and isolation from each other. There is a reason Jesus commissions those who follow him to go and make disciples who make disciples. It's because we're all in this together. It is because the Spirit works through the body and not a single member. I've said this many times, but it bears repeating in light of this topic. To be a Lone Ranger Christian, something that seems to be more and more increasingly popular, to be a Lone Ranger Christian is not an option in the Bible. And yet, it is sad, but so many get baptized and never return. I looked in my over 15 years being here. I have a record of everyone I've baptized. And I regret to tell you that the majority of them, after being baptized, have not returned. And to the best of my knowledge, are not a part of the body of Christ. And that makes no sense. To sum up then. The meaning of baptism we can infer from the scriptures is about identifying with and embracing Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by acknowledging our need for forgiveness and healing that only Christ can provide and thus yielding to the ongoing power and presence of Jesus that seeks to grow and mature our lives through the Holy Spirit, a journey of faith in which we follow Jesus not alone, but as part of the body of Christ, the church. That being said, there are some further points of clarification that are in order, and this is where it's going to get spicy. Baptism as an experience is never optional for a Christian. The Bible is clear to be a Christian is to be baptized because baptism is a divinely ordained practice commanded by Jesus himself for all who follow him because, it again, it signifies one's union with and dependence upon Jesus. However... It's important we also understand the Bible does not teach baptism as being necessary for our salvation in Christ. And yet many of us suffer under that belief that baptism is the golden ticket. And that's why many rush to get baptized and then leave and they go, I'm covered, I'm good, I'm saved. But I invite you and I'm not going to do it now. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's letter to that Corinthian church, his first letter, and see a church that is divided. And one of the things they're divided about, surprise, surprise, is baptism. And in that first chapter, Paul is very clear to say, baptism is not what saves you. Baptism is a reflection of your acknowledgement that you have been saved. The Bible does not teach that baptism is necessary for our salvation in Christ. If you stop and think about it, beloved, we were saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, and that salvation was extended to us over 2,000 years ago. When Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and then three days later rose from the grave and defeated the power of death. That's when we were saved. The effectiveness, to put this another way, the effectiveness or power of baptism is not magical. 
And some of us have very magical views about this. It's not because of any special power in the water. It's not because of any special power in the one officiating the baptism, sorry. The effectiveness or power born of baptism comes from the blessing, the grace of God embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ and imparted to us through the word and the spirit. Let me say it again. Getting baptized does not save us. Getting baptized is our response to having been saved, our response to God graciously initiating and reaching out to reveal himself to guide and direct us from death to life. And while it is not our response that saves us, our response taking hold of the forgiveness, healing, and eternal life that Jesus offers to everyone, that response still matters. Because again, baptism is the first step of a lifelong journey of faith, not merely a one-and-done transactional exercise. There is a big difference between doing something just because you should, it's just something you do, versus participating out of a desire, a hunger, a thirst, with a sense of expectation and commitment to learning. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with those, and we'll get to this, who want to have someone in their family baptized, and when I ask why, well, because it's just what I'm supposed to do. Well, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what we do. Great. Why? What does it mean to you? What do you think it means to God? Everything represented in the act of being baptized into Christ is intended to be reflected in every day of our life thereafter. Otherwise, we are liable to turn baptism into an empty ritual. And if this is nothing more than a checklist, a transitional, transactional exercise, that is exactly what you are making this, an empty ritual. Through the Word and the Spirit, we should expect from our baptism, we should expect and we will encounter Jesus as we are led in following him, anticipating, looking for, and yielding to Christ's presence and refining of how we think, we speak, and engage our lives is the continuation of our response to Jesus that begins at baptism. Now here we go. Because in the history of the church, there have been, despite what I've just laid out, varying and frankly unnecessary debates about how baptism is exactly to occur. And I again will remind you as I get into all of this that nowhere do you find it would be great if we did any scripture that is directly prescriptive, outlining mode, eligibility, all these things that we fight over. But still, here we go. One of the biggest arguments has been, it was the question that was submitted, the main question, when one should be baptized? Should one be baptized either soon after one's birth as an infant or a child, or later when one is an adult and able to make a profession in faith in Christ. And if you know anything about this topic in the church, this is the big one. However, if we search the scriptures, we see considerable evidence, particularly in the book of Acts, the story of the birth of the church, to support the practice of what is known as household baptism, where all members of a given household are baptized based on the profession of faith of the head of that household. In Acts 2, as Peter draws, draws his first sermon delivered on Pentecost to a close, he offers this invitation. Listen closely. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord will call. Notice the invitation to baptism extended by Peter explicitly includes the children of believers. There is no mention of a required age or even a profession of faith being made as a requirement to being baptized. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia's entire household is baptized. As later in that same chapter, the household of the converted Philippian jailer are baptized. In fact, approximately one quarter of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament are household baptisms. Never once are children said to be excluded from a household baptism. And, to go a little deeper, as baptism is often framed, especially by the Apostle Paul, as the replacement for the former covenant sign of circumcision, the identifying marker for Abraham and his descendants, that marker of belonging to the Lord, if you go back to the practice of circumcision, the act of circumcision was not limited to male adults, thank God. Let that sink in for a second. Wait until you're old enough to make a profession of faith, and then we cut you. That sounds great. <laughs> no, it was commanded for male children after eight days of being born. And this would also seem to reinforce the practice of baptizing infants and children. When a parent who is a Christian seeks to baptize their child, this is a recognition by them of their child belonging to the Lord. It is leaning into the scriptural assertion that before we choose God, God chooses us. To baptize an infant or a child in one's family is to underscore that our faith in, our salvation by God, are not primarily about our choice or decision, but rather God's choice and decision to initiate in giving us faith, in saving us from ourselves. But in saying all of that, I want to be clear Baptizing children is not about securing their salvation because, again, baptism does not save us. And that's not how many of us approach this when we want our children baptized. We think we are, they're covered now. They can go live however they want, but if nothing else, they've been baptized. Don't work that way. Baptism does not save us because baptizing one's children comes with the commitment and promise to raise one's family in the faith and within the fellowship of the church. I say this every time I sit. I don't just baptize people, you know, whatever. I have a conversation, and I sit there, and I sit across from parents or grandparents, and I say to them, if you're having your child baptized, you need to come and be a part of the church, and if not our church, any church, because that is what you are promising, to raise your child in the faith, and you can't raise your child in the faith alone. You're called to raise your child. In fact, in doing this, you're saying you're a part of the church. In over 15 years, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people nod their heads, smile, and then I don't see him again. Baptism, baptizing one's children, comes with this commitment to teach and model what a life yield to Christ rooted in the word and spirit looks like. And you can't do that apart from the body. And on as a side note, because someone asked it, what's the point of godparents or sponsors? And this is funny. Sponsors, by the way, now is the PC term because we used to call them godparents, but everybody started in the 70s seeing the godfather and they thought if you were like the godparents, it's like, hey, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Someday. Kiss the ring. That's not the origin of godparents. Godparents were people in your life. And by the way, this is also important because when we have this conversation, people often want godparents to be their best friends. 
But godparents can't just be the people who you, you, are your best friends. They need to be people who follow Jesus. Because godparents are people who are saying, alongside the parents, or if something happens to the parents, we're committed to ensuring this child is raised in the faith. But because of the confusion, now we don't call, call them godparents anymore. We call them sponsors. Fine. But that's the role. The role of godparents, and oftentimes we've lost this practice. It used to be the people that you asked to be the godparents in the Christian faith for your children were also the people that if something happened to you, not only raising them in the faith, they became your children. You designated them as these children are now yours. So it's important when you're baptized to have a sponsor. It's not required, but it's a good thing to have people who support you and encourage you. And beyond the specific godparents or sponsors that you may choose, who again, really can't fulfill that job description if they don't believe in Jesus, understand it was your best friend in college, but if they don't believe in Jesus, they're committing to something they can't really do. But even beyond the godparents and the sponsors, there's the larger, wider godparents and sponsorship of the body. And that's why when we engage in baptism, I don't just ask questions of the parents or the godparents who are here. I ask and turn questions to you because we're a part of that nurturing and encouragement. Now let's talk about the other side of the coin, what is known as believer's baptism. Now, while one should not necessarily delay one's baptism, why would you? Hear me, if baptism is not something that saves us, if baptism is not something that's necessary for salvation, then waiting to be baptized isn't problematic per se. Hear that. If it's not what saves us, then it's not problematic to wait. Adult or believer baptism is placing more emphasis on the other side of the continuum. It's stressing the importance and significance of responding to God's invitation in our lives, consciously living out of the grace and faith that the Lord imparts to us. However, those who lean this way, this idea of believer, you need to believe, need to be careful of overemphasizing one's decision for Christ rather than God's decision for us in Christ. Strong adherence of strictly believer's baptism, it's not legit unless it's believer baptism, often assert that a profession or confession of faith is a requirement of being eligible to be baptized. But again, search the scriptures and you'll find no support for that premise. What the Bible records is the Bible is that baptism is based on belief, not a stated profession or formulated confession of faith. Baptism is based on belief. And if that's so, given that, how can anyone who seeks to be baptized, for anyone who seeks to be baptized, how can we know for sure, conclusively, despite whatever is said, what another person actually believes? How do we know? Is it merely intellectual assent? Is it just here, read this card out loud? Is it merely intellectual assent? What about those, and we talked about this in a previous sermon, who lack that capacity? To make that intellectual ascent, does that mean they can't be baptized? How much, let's go even further, if it's about belief, how much exactly does one have to believe to be baptized? How much? Would you say you believe more now than you did when you were baptized, those of you who are supporters of believer baptism? Was it a mistake because you believe so much more now? How much do you have to believe? And I would argue instead of wrestling with these questions of landing where the scriptures do, which declare that only God knows the heart. Only God knows the heart. We cannot and do not control the liberating grace of God. Baptism is not contingent on the faith of the person to be baptized. 
Baptism rests on the faith God has, the faith God places in us. I mean, if you think about it, if salvation in one sense is a process that goes on throughout one's life, and what I mean by process is there's a difference between being saved, which we are, and being sanctified, meaning being gradually refined, transformed, if you will, matured into the salvation that is already ours, if that is a process which is only settled at our physical death and ultimately at our resurrection at Christ's return, if salvation in one sense is a process that goes on throughout one's life, then baptism can never be a matter of waiting until a person fully believes. Because again, baptism rightly understood is a recognition of the ongoing work of God that begins long before and continues well beyond whenever we are baptized. To put this another way, consider this analogy, which is not mine, but I find quite helpful. Baptism is like enrollment in school. The school of the kingdom of God, the school of the character of Christ. Parents enroll their children in school apart from and without the consent of their children. Parents enroll their children in school with the expectation and the commitment to participating in their learning and in growing in what they are taught. Now, when an adult enrolls in school, which happens, the assumption is the adult enrolled themselves in school with some knowledge of the course content and with an acceptance of the responsibilities of the course requirements. The common denominator between the two, children and adults, is baptism like enrollment is the starting point. The recognition of the beginning of the journey and a commitment to recognizing and yielding to a particular teacher and guide and thus following in a certain direction. I find that helpful. And again, I'm going to say this, it doesn't matter when you're baptized. There's room for both, infant and believer baptism. Here it is to blow your minds. I grew up Catholic, so I was baptized as an infant. My wife that I married is a Baptist, so she was baptized as a believer and when we had our kids, boy, those were some interesting conversations, let me tell you. <laughs> Woo! But again, because of what I shared, I wasn't going to put pressure. I wasn't, you know, I, I believed we could claim that for our children and baptism could be something. And one of the, fir- the very first thing I did after I was ordained is I baptized both my kids. They had in their own ways, had professed belief. Not that I think that's a requirement. And I guarantee you what they professed at the time is much different than where they are now. There's room. There's room in this continuum. We don't need to be divided about this. But I wish that was the only lingering question which persists about baptism. Because again, there are some Christians who get hot and bothered about the mode of baptism. There are those who argue only full immersion is real baptism. Others argue that a tub of water does not count, that the water needs to be a real body of water for it to be legit. Still others, as you may know, insist a dip in the water or a sprinkling of that water will suffice for one's baptism. And there's a lot, and I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, there's a lot about the Greek word for baptism, how it means to immerse. And I'm here to tell you that is incorrect. The Greek word for baptism does mean to immerse, but guess what? It also means to dip. (laughs) How do you like them apples? And the word as used doesn't refer to a mode. That's not its primary emphasis. The word is used, refers to a process and an effect, cleansing or purification. In other words, the exact manner or mode of baptism, immersion, dunking, dipping, sprinkling, isn't prescribed in the Bible. Going to war over this 
is useless and nonsensical because it's not prescribed in the Bible. All that matters according to the scriptures is that water is used, that the invocation of God's promises and blessings are invoked in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the other thing the Bible is crystal clear about is baptism is a once-in-a-lifetime event for a follower of Jesus. No repeats are necessary. And yet some of us will go to a church and they'll say, what, you were baptized as an infant? Well, that didn't count. You got to do it again. No. No repeats are necessary because a journey only has one beginning. We don't need to be rebaptized again because, once more, our baptism is not about our decision or level of commitment which can waver and change. Baptism is about God's decision toward us, the Lord's commitment to us, which never wavers, which never changes. A journey has only one beginning, and our journey of faith is no different. Baptism is a one-shot experience of a means of grace, but one that keeps on giving as it drowns the old self and continues to raise us up to become the new person in Christ, who we truly are in Jesus. Now, in saying that, while baptism only need be conducted once, and rebaptism is unnecessary, the experience of baptism is intended to be a touchstone for us in following Jesus. It's intended to be something we remember and renew daily. And so some churches, and we are one of them, has the, have, have the experience of renewing our baptismal vows. And I've always viewed this, as I may have shared with you, as renewing one's wedding vows. I don't know how old you were when you got married, but you made some promises before God that got real when you actually started living into them. And sometimes the reason why we renew our baptismal vows is because we go, you know what? Those words mean something different to me now. To love, honor in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. When you go through some stuff, suddenly you want to renew those vows because now they mean something more. And baptism doesn't change, but renewing our baptismal vows is a recognition that our perspective changes. It's our understanding and appreciation of the experience from where we started to how far along the journey we are. While, again, God's view and commitment to us never changes, as works in progress, as sinners being transformed into saints, the cycle and the rhythm of confession, repentance, and being reoriented to the forgiveness and grace of God is a daily experience. So there's a place, I think, to renew our baptismal vows. I know we've been all over the place, but here it is. Tragically, again, as I started, baptism is seen as the waters that divide followers of Jesus from each other rather than bringing them together. And this really is tragic. Entire denominations within the church have sprung up. Their history is based on a, as a result of hotly debated disagreements over the mode, the meaning, and the purpose of baptism, as well as when someone should be baptized. And the modern legacy, what we're living with as a result of such controversy, such confusion and division over this sacred practice of the faith, is either distaste or disinterest in being baptized at all, wanting no part of it. Or at best, baptism has become viewed as something, as I said, which shouldn't be, something transactional as covering the basis for oneself or one's children or grandchildren in being right with the Lord and assured of their salvation. And that isn't any good either. Beloved, we need to stop muddying the waters of baptism, waters intended to bring us together in Christ rather than to keep us apart in the name of Jesus. For as the scriptures proclaim, as Jesus commissions, baptism is something in which we are intended to find our unity in the church. As Paul writes in our passage today, those who have died and risen again with Christ are known by their common shared baptism. Interesting little fact, during the Protestant Reformation, 
one of the moments of kind of reorienting the church from getting off the, the, the path, it was suggested that every time we wash with water, we are presented with an opportunity to remember our baptism, to be reminded of the promises God makes to us through our baptism, and therefore to remember what it means to pledge ourselves to Christ. I like that. What if that became our habit every time we took a shower or a bath, every time we washed our hands? What if in, in that moment we stopped and thought about the promises that God has made to us and thought about in response the pledge of commitment we've made to God? Maybe if we did that on a regular basis, instead of muddying the waters over the particulars of how and when and who is baptized, we might stay more focused, we might stay more united on the point of being baptized. Maybe if we did that as a regular part of our practice, instead of treating baptism like something we check off as a part of being a Christian, we'd allow the meaning of baptism, the spirit at the heart of baptism, to more explicitly shape and direct our lives. I'll confess I like this idea so much that over this past week, I've adopted this practice. Particularly every time I'm in the shower. This may seem weird to you, but I've splashed myself in the face with water three times to remind myself that I've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To remind myself that I belong to the Lord as God's beloved child. To remind myself that I no longer live out of guilt and shame, but I live out of Christ's forgiveness and grace. To remember that I've been called, I've been sent, I've been empowered by the Spirit not to live in fear, but to walk by faith. To make a difference in the world, to point to the kingdom through everything I say and do. And to remember that all along the way I can trust that I am being refined, that I am being shaped for the full, abundant, and everlasting life that God has in store for me. That's my true identity. That's my central purpose. That's my ultimate destiny. And if you've been baptized in Christ, it's yours too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.